I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is someone I have known for almost 30 years. That's because I used to broker business to him back in the 1990s when I was working in the London market. Back then, he was making a name for himself as a lead market in the international casualty class at UK composite Eagle Star. As my career changed completely, his took off, and at QBE Europe, he swiftly rose the ranks to become its most senior underwriting executive. Then, eight years ago, he left to pursue the dream of founding a Lloyd's business of his own. Anyone who met Ash Bathia, CEO of Probitas 1492, 30 years ago, will have marked him out as someone with the ambition and drive to make a real impact on the market. And as it turned out, Ash was going to need all of that drive and a lot more. Probitas had as tough a start in life as it is possible to have. Born right at the nadir of one of the longest soft markets in history, Probitas was hit hard by the unexpected loss of its cornerstone capital provider and extremely challenging early underwriting numbers in its ramp-up years. Almost all of its peers folded or were actively shuttered by Lloyds itself in its recent remediation phase. But today, Probitas is a top Lloyds performer and is preempting capacity and scaling up as market conditions continue to turn in its favour. Interviewing Ash was just like broking to him all those years ago. He hasn't changed much. He's still smart, sharp and direct, with great charm. And he's a great trader, problem solver and deal maker in the classic Lloyd's entrepreneurial tradition. The difference is that to those skills you can now add maturity, humility and the wisdom that comes from starting and running a business of his own. These days, Ash has one hell of a story to tell. I'm just grateful that he let me be the first one to get it out of him. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Ash, I think of all the people that I've broke to in my early career, I think you're now officially the most successful entrepreneur amongst them. And there have been some quite good people that I've broke to over the years. You've did what I think everyone thought you would always go and do. You've built yourself a top quartile Lloyd's business. Now you've done that. It's been a long struggle. Do you think the effort has been worth it? I remember you breaking to me back in 
early 90s, I think it was, when you were Gilika Rahal. So yeah, we go back a long way. And at the time, I was with a company market. I didn't really understand how Lloyd's actually operates. But it's been amazing. To me, Lloyd's is an amazing, strong, global brand. And it's a much sought out of franchise. I really believe that. And therefore, I'm really delighted, notwithstanding all the time and effort it takes to build a Lloyd's business, and it takes a hell of effort, especially starting from nothing, I think is very, very rewarding. I think it's very satisfying. I think especially for Previs House, we started a very challenging time when the market was at its knees, you know, end of 2015. To find you on one piece of business as a new carrier with limited capacity, it was really, really difficult. If I look back and look at all those people who've started in Lloyd's as a new business since 2011, I think hardly anyone has actually still made the grade. So what I'm pleased about is that notwithstanding all these challenges that Premitas has actually come through, and I really hope that Lloyd's sees us as an example of what can be done, that you can be successful. I think if you have the right mindset, you have the right discipline, then I think you can create a really positive business with the Lloyd's franchise, with the Lloyd's brand, with the Lloyd's capital structure. It's got so many positive advantages, all the licenses which are available to you as a Lloyd's business. So I think to me, it's been fantastic that Previtas has come through. And from the very beginning, we wanted to have our own identity as a business. We didn't want to be a me-too business in Lloyd's. We were more defined by the things we said we wouldn't do than the things we would do. So what we said is we're not going to be U.S. And if you look at Lloyd's, about 40, 45% of the Lloyd's business is U.S. We said our focus is not going to be in writing binding authorities. And if you go to Lloyd's, 40% of the business is binding authorities. And we said we'll have a diverse distribution strategy. So therefore, we're not reliant on the top three brokers, which produce about 70% of the Lloyd's business. Which if I look at our business, less than 30% of the business comes from the top three global brokers. And then the other big thing for me was building the analytics capability. So when we hired a chief pricing officer, literally day one, it was like, hang on, chief pricing officer actually sits with a managing agency, not with a syndicate. Well, actually, our chief pricing officer sat with the syndicate. So building that capability, strong analytics and actual capability, and a data warehouse where we can get data on demand, I think all those things have really been instrumental, in my view, in allowing us to take this journey and go through all the hard yards and then come out of it and hopefully now have a strong base and a foundation from which we can build on to deliver a combined ratio 2020 of 85.6%, which is the best performing syndicate in Lloyd's other than the nuclear syndicate, thank God. They are the best performing still, otherwise they'd be Armageddon. It's incredibly satisfying and very rewarding. And it's only because of Lloyd's that we've been able to do that. So we're very grateful to have that Lloyd's franchise still available. I suppose as a startup, all those costs are front-loaded. So your first three years results always look pretty dreadful. That is true. I think it's a combination of things, isn't it? I think timing is one thing. So again, starting in a very soft market, very hard to build business. 
I think getting the right people in and got to invest properly, you know, if you get corners on that, then you can never build those foundations. And yes, there's a massive expense range, particularly for the first two years. It really is not possible to make money. So you have to be patient and your capital providers have to be patient along with you and lawyers have to be patient with you as well. So you've got to make sure that you're communicating why the performance and why the challenges, which there are many, means that you've got to give yourself a bit of time and everybody else has to give you a bit of time to allow you to get through that initial phase and then they can see the real value of what you're building. So you're absolutely right. Any new business is difficult, but I think Lloyd's environment, it's even more difficult because it's an annual venture and you have to reload your capital annually as well. And that's challenging. People have to believe absolutely what you're doing and your story. And they've got to not only believe what you're saying, but actually see what you're doing to see that there is a roadmap to actually success somewhere in the future. And that's a real challenge for a lot of people in Lloyd's. So you've come through all the hard stuff. And of course, you say about capital advisors because you had to change capital advisors early on, which I think was obviously not going to be in your original plan. So congratulations on having navigated that. But now we've got through to a much better market position and you can pencil in some growth. So run us through those growth plans for 2021 and beyond. One of the key things we set out from day one is let's focus on classes of business where we believe that we have expertise and the knowledge to actually build those. Too often people become magpies and they go for anything which is shining. So focus on the areas which you feel you can actually make a difference and do them well. Don't do 20 things, do 10 well, five or six average, and then two or three, which are basically going to kill you because you've done them so badly. So I think the big thing for us has been focusing on the classes of business where you understand with the right people in place. So we only focus on property, direct and facultative, and casualty classes, which is my background for 42 plus years I've been in the industry. So I think that's really important, I think, to set out. And I would say this slightly controversially. I think one of the issues with capital is this thing about diversification credit. Sometimes I think people make a mistake where they think that diversification credit can give you that capital efficiency. But if your underlying business is not performing, then any model of capital diversification makes no difference. I always just say, writing two bits of rubbish, it's more rubbish. So you might get diversification in your capital, but if you're writing 120%, it makes no difference. That's the thing that Vijay Downing described as diversification rather than diversification. I take it with that, in your growth plans, you're only going to diversify if you have an opportunity to bring on a team of people that you really trust and that you know are absolute leaders and have a great track record. So presume that you're going to be going deeper into DNF and international casualty because that's what you know you're really, really good at. The other way you can diversify your capital is, of course, by just buying reinsurance and benefiting from the reinsurer's global diversification. Is that more your philosophy? So why don't I just get really good at DNF, get a strong position, and then obviously I can use reinsurance to mitigate my aggregations and other things? I'll address the reinsurance point first. I think reinsurance is often misunderstood. I think reinsurance is there to give you that smoother 
effectively. I don't think we should be using reinsurance for arbitrage because that would be the wrong strategy. Because then what you're doing is if you're using reinsurance for arbitrage, you're tempted to lose your underlying discipline of underwriting. And if you do that, it's not going to end up well. So I think you use reinsurance wisely because at the end of the day, we are a distribution to our reinsurers as much as brokers are distribution to us. So it's important to have that relationship with the reinsurance, which is long-term. And people say, but I think it's real. It has to be long-term. And therefore, you've got to nurture that relationship. And whilst in the early days, yes, you can facilitate some things, but over time, you've got to make sure that reinsurers are actually making money as well, because everybody needs to make money and service that capital at the end of the day. So when you talk about growth, is it going to be growth within your real specialist fields, which we've now demonstrated clearly that you are leaders in and your top quartile in, or would some of that growth take the form of something new? So I think there are probably three or four things I want to talk about. So one of the strategies we're deploying at the moment in our business is look at our current business. And do a lot of segmentation. And what's great is from day one, we set out to build analytics capability in the business. When we were 40 people, we had five qualified actuaries sitting in the center of the business with the underwriters. So we built an amazing data warehouse where we can actually triangulate every single policy or every single declaration on a facility or on a binder on a daily basis. Now that gives us powerful MI, live, on demand. Now, we utilize this to do the segmentation. And the strategy we're using is optimization, remediation, and diversification for our existing business. So what I mean by that? Optimization. Look at the areas of business writing and look at the subsets within that and see where it's better performing business. Okay, how can we grow that? And the underwriters know this. So now let's focus on growing those businesses which are doing well. Remediation, what are the ones which are not working? So let's deal with that. Either we come out of that, we have to be strong to do that, and then right to be strong to do that, or we try and see whether we can improve the terms and conditions of that business. And sometimes that's not possible because of supply and demand in dynamics of the business. But remediation and the diversification. Diversification be geographic. So either particular territories, which we're not playing in, which we can do better in, and we need to diversify into. Are there brokers we're not dealing with? And why are we not dealing with them? So why don't we look at those brokers and see whether there's an opportunity to write more business to those brokers? So I think that underpins our business because we're able to see the data. We can actually make informed decisions on how we diversify our existing and grow our existing portfolio and put a break on areas of business which are causing us concern. So that's one part of the diversification. I think the second part of the diversification really is looking at new classes of business. Whilst we've focused on the areas I've mentioned, I can see some real opportunities in a couple of new areas of business going forward where there's increasing demand, but reducing supply, perfect. That's where we want to be, and specialist. That's another corollary. So I look at cyber, there's been a big dislocation and there's more to come, but it's an area. You know, if we're going to be a 21st century business, 
cyber has to be an important part of our strategy going forward and will be. That's an area we're doing a lot of research in at the moment to look at all the dynamics of the market, look at the dynamics of exposure. There's going to be a growing demand, particularly in the area. And we want to be here now to be able to provide solutions to our clients and our brokers. So that's an area we are going to explore and probably do something over the next 12 months. And the other one is the international casualty treaty business. We don't run that currently. Again, with all the adverse backyard developments happening, a lot of ill-disciplined underwriting, both on the front end and on the reinsurance side, I have to say, that's an opportunity. So that's something else we're exploring. So you're absolutely right. Let's identify the areas where supply and demand is in the right way, where we think we can actually make a difference and provide solutions, and we can create a long-term profitable business in that area. Those are two areas we're currently exploring. In that international casualty treaty, am I right in assuming that would more like to be quota share, where you pick up a really good local partner somewhere around the world in a market that's now dislocated because all the big international players are not playing anymore, and you can support them? Absolutely right. So fewer clients with deeper relationships, I think is the way to go, where we can provide a solution in a market which is moving in the right direction. And then on the back of that, we can also provide the facultative solutions as well. So it's fully integrated, but with a fewer clients, but deeper relationships is the way I see it for us. What you said about technology was interesting about having a big data pool, data lake, right from day one, that was what you set out. Often bigger companies seem to see technology as a big sort of hammer that they can use to batter smaller businesses with. So how do you go about as a smaller player competing with bigger firms in that application of technology? Do you think these days the roles are slightly reversed in that it's more about your attitude to technology than the cost itself? Spot on. I think the cost of technology are coming down because there's more options available. There's a lot more flexibility and how you deploy technology. So I think in some ways, I think being a small player without a legacy is actually a big advantage rather than a disadvantage, I think, for us. And what happens, I think, unfortunately, with the big organizations is one, there's a legacy issue, and two, there's a massive internal compliance. And normally, the technology is actually done to the business because somebody's decided that technology is vogue, so we need to do something. Whereas I think for us, it's all about practical application of technology to actually make us better as a business and give us that competitive edge. So we don't get technology done to us. We actually do the technology to help us. It's a really important distinction. And the thing about technology is that if you spend enough time to think about what you are looking to achieve and what you want to do, and you have a very clear roadmap, then it can be a very positive experience. And it's done by the business for the business, as opposed to done by a third party to the business. So you're saying, well, focusing on some of the problems that you have is always a good thing anyway, whether the solution is technological or not. It's actually a very good mental exercise to know what the problem is before you start. So some people don't actually know what the problem is. Correct. And technology is not a panacea. It's not something you put on and then it just heals everything. It can be almost a big burden on some companies. So I think if you use technology in the right way, I think it can be a massive asset. 
And one of the applications for me about technology is about automation. If you look at the regulatory burden on businesses, one of the questions people often ask is about expense ratios. Now, expense ratios are driven by two things. They're driven by acquisition costs. I'll talk about that later. But the other one is obviously your operating expenses. But the amount of time and effort you spent on duplication or redoing the same thing every quarter, the returns, all those things, the reserving and then redoing it again every quarter. If you can automate those things, but it starts from core, it starts from the data, data integrity. So first of all, capture the data in a logical way, capture it properly and accurately. I use the principle of do it once and get it right. If your data is good and you can rely on that, then everything flows from that. Then you can do so many things. And then you can use technology to automate all the processes. So all the returns should be automated. Your finance team and your reserving team and your underwriters should be spending time actually challenging the data and actually looking at the insights which are coming out from the information as opposed to turning the handle and trying to just do the same old thing again differently every time you have to do something. So I think technology used in the right way, and that's one of the big things we're driving at the moment. And when I look at the people we've hired in the business, we've hired 20 people in the last 12 months. So we've gone from about 40 to 62 people. And the key criteria for hiring people for me, one is the three A's, which is one, people who've got ambition, aptitude, and really, really important attitude, which goes back to the culture I'll talk about later, maybe. But the other thing is having that technology savvy, being more 21st century. To me, that is another critical part of our hiring process. So the people we have in the business fully understand what's the art of the possible by using data, technology in the right way. And that's what's going to drive our business. But is it more important that they're not actually sort of PhDs in computer science, are they? But is it more that their attitude to technology, that their interest is in technology, the interest in the things that can be done and then be able to brief someone who is that really techie person? Is it more that? Yeah, this is the practical application of the technology which is available rather than a theoretical perception of the technology. That's what people go on. Ash, it's interesting that we're talking about expenses. Over the years that I've been covering the London and the international markets, there's always seems to be a received wisdom that there was a kind of ticket entry price to starting a business at Lloyd's, and there was an optimal size or at least a barrier size that you needed to get over, a hurdle size. You had to get over to be able to perform well, just so that you could absorb all the minimum ticket price expenses that you had to set up a business at Lloyd's. Do you think you've kind of disproved that? And in many ways, actually, we have had analysis that has disproved that over the years. And of course, you always look at outliers like Miko, for example, who've been consistently profitable for as long as anyone can remember, and again, not pushed over £100 million GWP. Do you still aspiring to getting to a size which over the years has gone from sort of £100 million to £250 million, or if you talk, depends who you talk to? Or do you think that's nonsense in the end? I don't think it's nonsense. I think scale is important. No question. But quality is paramount. Really, really important. You build quality, build the foundations, scale will come. Go the other way. You build scale before thinking about quality, you're doomed to failure, in my opinion. Foundations, data, analytics, underwriting discipline, 
performance management in the business, clear strategy in what you want to write, how you want to write it, clear distribution strategy. I think you get those foundations right, then you can actually make money as a small business, and then you can build scale on the back of that. So for me, it's build scale and diversify. I talk about group diversification, both generically within the business, but also a couple of new classes, but doing it properly, doing it in a very disciplined way. We can certainly do that. And that way we can grow and diversify, but maintaining all the foundations and the culture we have in the business and not losing that. Once you've got that and it's embedded in the business, you have to work at it and you've got to make sure that never kind of goes away. Once you do that, you can scale up. And then when you scale up, you have an amazing business. That's how we see our journey. So we're now 170 odd million of business for this year. You know, we had a 20% preemption Lloyd's granted us, which we're very, very happy about. And for 2021, we are just about to apply for a mid-year preemption because of the pricing we're getting, particularly on, on casualty lines. And therefore, we'll start now growing and we'll start diversifying. But we have this underlying foundations of our business, which will allow us to then grow even more profitably going forward and more successfully than if we'd gone the other way and started just writing business for the hell of it. I don't think we're living around, actually. I think actually you're right. Given the cull of fledgling businesses at Lloyd's in the last couple of years, I think that you'd be absolutely right. Obviously, we're talking about expenses. I think everyone would agree that Lloyd's as an aggregate has an expense problem. And of course, I mean, that's been very well documented right from the top. You're getting your house in order on applying technology to make sure you don't waste anything on the admin expense ratio. But you already mentioned about the acquisition cost ratio. Obviously, we're a broken market. You deal with brokers every day. So you're sort of saying it's their fault. Are they exploiting London in some way? What do you think they could be doing? Obviously, they're also going to be beneficiaries of a lot of the reforms that are happening and lack of rekeying and straight through processing and other things. So you, do you think that the best brokers will bring that acquisition cost down as their own frictional costs come down? I think it's a fair game at the end of the day in business, right? Grown-up businesses, grown-up underwriters, grown-up brokers. It's a commercial relationship. And it's up to you to work out what's best for you and the brokers to work out what's best for them. There's always going to be that little adversarial relationship whereby brokers want the highest commission and underwriters want to get the last commission. You know, who blinks first kind of thing. But it's not just that straightforward, in my opinion. Brokers are lifeblood at the end of the day. With other brokers, and we don't do any B2C business. We are a B2B business with our brokers. There are ways and means of dealing with that. We don't do pay-to-play, for example, because we just don't think that's the right thing to do. But we also want to see how can we align ourselves with partners who actually value what we're doing rather than just value our capacity. Because if they only value your capacity, they will go to people who are going to give them probably the highest amount of brokerage possibly and the best solution. Whereas if we can partner with people where we can bring some value to that and the value can be a product, it can be analytics capability, it can be an exclusivity arrangement, it could be any of those things. So 70% of our business comes from either the second tier brokers or independent brokers because we now have a much better negotiating platform because we are bringing some value to the business. So I think you're right in a way 
if you look at Lloyd's model, you've got to work out from a wholesale perspective, what is the value being added by brokers? And a lot of brokers add a lot of value, but some brokers don't add any value, in which case you don't deal with that. It's your choice at the end of the day as an underwriter. But you've got to have that in your psyche and a culture to be able to differentiate. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen to me that well sometimes. And then I look at binder business particularly. And I think from when I left QB, when I came back three years later and subsequent to that, I mean, the proliferation of MGU binder business was just unbelievable. Now, there's some fantastic MGAs out in the market, but there's some pretty average ones. And if you're going to pay away 35 points commission, you've got to get value for that. And a lot of the time, we just don't see that value. So if you look at how much binder business you're right, it's very, very limited because we just cannot make the acquisition costs work. So whilst you can improve your operational costs by two or three points, and our target is to get below 10% operational costs, and I think we can absolutely do that with technology and the culture we have in the business. But then you've got to focus on your acquisition costs. Now, you can deal with it in a couple of ways. One, yeah, you deal with the wholesale market and you've got to pick your spots and what you do. But also, you've got to establish some relationships locally to the origination of the business. So therefore, when you access that business, there's complete transparency in the value chain. Then you know what you're paying for. And sometimes you pay more, we are getting value, but a lot of the time you pay a lot less because that's the value. And the next corollary to that, one of the things which we have developed is really a quote to bind platform. And we've done it proprietary in-house, open source. You know, we haven't hired a third-party IT contractor to tell us what it should be. It's done by the business. Now, technology is agnostic in terms of you can apply it globally. So we've got this model which we've built we've already used it for one broker in one of the uk regional places somewhere in the north west they're not lloyd's broker but they can access us directly because we set up our own lloyd's broker as well at the same time and we're using technology now a quote to bind system to transact with that now we're developing that and we can use that anyway we can go to australia and work with a retail broker we can go to canada and work with a retail broker, and therefore we're creating more value, not just for the broker, originating broker, but also for the clients, because you know they're getting something now out of all these things as well. So I think as a business, especially a 21st century business, you've got to have a broader distribution strategy than just waiting at the box for the business to come to you. You've got to be more proactive in reaching out getting their business and then negotiating because the acquisition costs make a big difference. Whilst the operating expenses can make two or three points difference, acquisition costs can make five to 10 points difference. And how do your wholesale brokers feel about that? The ones that used to broker that business from your regional partner, who would have been the Lloyds broker on that, who presumably weren't adding a huge amount of value. How do they feel about you cutting them out there? That's a really good point. And we're very open about this thing. And we're very transparent about what we're doing. So we won't go out and eat other people's lunch, you know, our broker's lunch, because why would we do that? We look at new things, new opportunities, which are not coming into London. So that's the key. And in a way, we create a bit of an excitement around the fact that, you know, we've reached out and done something. And the result of that, if we talk about geographical thing, 
people actually send more business into Lloyd's because Lloyd's has provided a solution, which is something a bit different. I don't see it as a threat to the broker. I see it as very much complementary to the broker. But also, most importantly, it's making sure that Lloyd's franchise globally still stays relevant. That's a key thing for me. And if we provide these kind of innovative things and we reach out and we're more proactive, all it does is increases the value of Lloyd's franchise and the brand of Lloyd's. We don't have any other platform. You know, we can't write business on company paper like a lot of the larger managing agencies can do. It becomes difficult to write business in Lloyd's. We don't have that. We are completely aligned with Lloyd's. And how's that experience been of when you get into the business of distribution, of course, you are investing. You're incurring those costs yourself where the broker would have done them. What's the experience been like? Well, in a way, you're just investing in your IP, right? Not actually cash. It'd be like technology. It's the same thing. It's not about how much money you spend. It's how you spend it and what's the value you get out of that. So traveling, meeting, talking, yeah, it costs a little bit, but it doesn't cost that much. But the value you get out of that far outweighs what you're spending. It's more of the sort of investment in headspace or time. Yeah, both those things. Absolutely right. Yeah. On the acquisition cost side, obviously, you know, I've been a broker and when you're in a competition, you sort of sit there and maybe net down your commission down to the minimum respectable margin that you feel you can do to win the account and to be able to service that account and still make a profit. We've had so much consolidation, big brokers, small brokers, roll-ups, all sorts of things. What you alluded to earlier was that there is that competitive pressure. It's a commercial market. Of course, brokers know that if it's a competitive market, they can't jack up commissions because they won't win the business. The gross premium will be too high. So at the moment, what do you feel in terms of that competitive landscape and also being a smaller player? Do you think it's competitive enough to make the market sort itself out on acquisition costs or is something else at play? Things always sort themselves out at the end of the day, right? You get consolidation. That happens in every industry. And the bigger it gets, the more challenging it becomes sometimes. You know, there's an optimum size at the end of the day, right? And then you get new people coming in, new entrepreneurs coming in, and you've seen it now. And you also see the next tier of brokers are now ramping up. And reinsurance is a great example of that. If you look at how much movement there is in the broken reinsurance market, I think the macroeconomics and microeconomics actually sort themselves out at the end of the day. You can become too big and then things start changing. So that's just market dynamics. The key thing as a business, you've got to work that out and say, okay, look at the global markets, trillions, right? We want to find 200, 300 million pounds of the business within that. It can't be that difficult at the end of the day. So you should not be beholden to any distribution or any territory or anything, you've got to make sure that you are driving your own destiny. And that's what a small business can do far better sometimes because, you know, you're not reliant on any particular. And also, I think as a smaller business, you can be a lot more dynamic and you can make quick decisions. Whereas with the big businesses, big corporations, it's very hard to change directions. It's like turning a tanker. Whereas for us, it's a speedboat. We can move quickly. To me, in a dynamic world we live in currently, I think that's a big advantage rather than a disadvantage. So presumably there's not a huge chain of command to go and ask Ash whether we can do this or not? Absolutely none. I have regular meetings with every senior underwriter weekly for half an hour. 
and all my senior managers. It's a massive communication. It's a completely open door policy and also a great speaker policy in the business. I mean, what I love about our culture is that everybody can make a difference and have the opportunity to make a difference. And therefore, having that ability to be able to communicate across the business, doesn't matter where you sit, I think is really critical. And I call our kind of leadership as being inspiring and enabling, not just managing. Because a lot of the time, you just manage. Well, if you just spend all your time managing, you've got the wrong people in the business. I think empower, inspire, and then make sure that people are accountable for what they're doing. Do you still get involved in underwriting, actually, Ash? Only in terms of people bouncing ideas off me. But they're slightly worried about one, or they're not sure if it's either a brilliant idea or a really terrible idea, and it's difficult to identify which one it is. Yeah. And, and also, I still want brokers, and they come up with an opportunity, and I'll think about it and think, oh, this looks really interesting. But then, at the end of the day, I will not second-guess my underwriters. But we have a dialogue about these things, and sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree. Ultimately, underwriters make the final decision. But I hope that with my knowledge and with my experience, I can help as much to give people wine and their kind of thought processes as well. So yes, I do indirectly get involved in a lot of underwriting because at the end of the day, I would say, Mark, I call our business as underwriting-led, not underwriter-led. So it's that combination of underwriting and analytics, the art and the science, I think which makes the business at the end of the day. You can have fantastic compliance and governance and all that. If you're not making money in the front end of your business in underwriting, you don't have a license for anything. So therefore, our business is underwriting-led. It's all about discipline, managing or performance management, tracking, all those things. I think if we deliver consistent bottom-line profits, we can build anything we want beyond that. If we get that wrong, forget everything else. We have license for nothing. So that's why, yes, I do spend quite a lot of time in making sure, understand what's going on in the underwriting side, even though I don't underwrite myself. It's in my DNA, and that will never change. On the technology side, we've had really interesting development with the key syndicate as part of BRIT. You're into your technology, but you're also really into people. So I wonder if if you're really more of a people only, and you'd want to leave the technology out of the underwriting decisions, or do you think you might want to let them in, let it in for volume stuff? We're not a B2C business at the end of the day. We are a B2B business. And therefore, I think technology as part of that enabler, I don't think you can ever take out human intervention completely, in my opinion, at least anyway. But at least for privatized, we don't see it that way. So we don't see ourselves as a pure follow-only business because of the size we are and everything else. For us, It's the fact that we want to understand and fully appreciate the risks we're taking on as a business and be able to monitor and measure those risks. And I can see a space for some new capital coming in and wanting to follow the index, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we support that, I think, because that's that's good for Lloyd's as a franchise as well, but not something for us. I see a combination of technology and human interaction as the best way to build a business for us. You'd rather be the leader that the automatic underwriting algorithm follows than be the one that's writing a new automatic algorithm to follow other people or follow yourselves? Ideally, that would be 
Senate. Yeah, fair statement. That's fair enough. And what do you think is going to happen to that relationship, that lead-follow relationship that's going to develop over the next 10 years? What do you think is going to happen? We've discussed about leaders' fees, and some people are really pro, and some people are really against it. Some people think that the market will just sort itself out again, that the leader, of course, gets the benefit of seeing all the business, therefore doesn't need to be paid any extra or given perverse incentives, perhaps, to that things might not end well. I just want to ask what your opinion on that is. First of all, is it going to make money over a longer term? Simple, right? If it's not going to make money, it's not going to work, right? I think the other one, I guess, the lead follow thing is the expenses. Are you getting a genuine saving in your expenses by being a follower? So can you make that 10, 12 point saving in your operating expenses? Now, if you can do that, then I think, yeah, there's absolute space for people who want to do that to be able to say, right, you know, we don't need to deploy a whole army of people to underwrite the business. You know, we have a skinny management team looking at the performance and the dynamics of the business, but we're going to follow some people in the market who we think, you know, and our market leaders in, in the space where they're writing. So I can see that as a model. But I think I've seen a bit of an evolution of the Lloyd's market in terms of follow. I mean, you know, if you go back, Mark, to our good old days, you know, back in early 90s, leader was sacrosanct. I mean, there were few leaders and a lot of follow markets and everybody followed, you know, 5% lines, 3% lines. Well, that's changed. I mean, let me give an example just of international liability market. If you wrote a 50% line, I mean, that was like, wow, on anything, you know. And if you wrote a primary five million, that was a big stretch. Well, look at it now. Underwriters will write 100% of a primary 15 million. How has life changed? And also the dynamics and the PLs of each individual managing agency or syndicate are very different. And therefore, what might work for you as a leader might not work for you as a follow market. So I think the opportunity is there. But you need to be very sure, especially as a follow market, that that opportunity is the right opportunity for you. So the two things will drive with performance over time. And secondly, whether you can actually make genuine cost saving by being a follow market. They still have to prove that they're treating their customers fairly and that they know what they're doing and they've got control of their aggregations and all the other stuff. Yeah, you can delegate the underwriting, but you can't delegate everything else. One thing I've forgotten to ask you, Ash, obviously we've been through many market cycles. We can see by the lines on your face that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> What's your gut feeling about this market upturn we've had? Has it got legs? Is it going to last? I think different areas with different dynamics. I will only speak about the areas of business we currently underwrite and then a couple of other new areas I've talked about. So when I look at the property DNF market for us, non US, I think. We've had three successive years, 18, 19, 20, of rate rises, much needed, I would say. And 21, we're still seeing that. But at some stage, I think that will settle down. Fair enough. So maybe another 18 months, I think we'll see probably fine, and then things will settle down. On the casualty classes, I think it's a very different story. I still think there's a lot of adverse development to come through the back years because of the ill-disciplined underwriting which has gone on for too many years. I think the regulatory and the legal environment has become more challenging. And therefore, I see at least another three years of momentum in those areas of business. 
And then I've talked about the two new areas which we're looking at, which are kind of related and specialist, you know, casualty treaty. It takes another three years before you really find out what's actually happened. And therefore, that will be more sustainable, even more longer period. And cyber, because people have written a lot of cyber business, but it's only over the last 12 months that some of the real exposures from cyber are becoming more apparent. And therefore, that's a market which will evolve. And I, th- I see maybe another three plus year opportunity in that, in that market. And then geographies. So if I look at geography by way of example, if I look at the Australian liability market, I think there's a long way to go. If I go back to 2002, what happened in Australia, suddenly people couldn't go out and do their barbecues in the gardens, in the parks. They couldn't buy insurance. There was a massive dislocation in that market. And the tort reform came in. And then suddenly there's a whole sudden withdrawal of capacity. I'm not saying we're going to get to that stage. But from some of the underwriting I've seen in that market over the last seven, eight, nine years, something is going to give. So I think there could be some geographies, which even if I look at the UK market, I think there's still more to come in the UK liability and the property market in the UK, because it hasn't quite done what some of the international markets has done. So I think as a business, you know, you've got to just keep an eye on all these areas, geographies, classes of business, subsets within that, you know, you need to get granular. If you do that, then you can find your spots. So I go back to my original thing about optimization, about remediation and diversification. And that's how you pick your spots. Six years ago, when you were starting Probitas, if you could sort of get in the time machine and go back in the DeLorean and, and you know, set the time clock for six years back, what would you say to yourself, your, your young Marty McFly, Ashpathia? What advice would you give him? Timing. My God, don't start in a market which is going through the bottom and scraping not just the surface, but beyond that. <laughs> don't do it. No, it's hard. It's hard. And it takes a lot of guts and resilience and effort to get out of that. I learned that lesson. Do you think you underestimated it because you've been sitting in a big corporate You do. And the other thing is who your real friends are. You know, when you're sitting in a big corporate with big capacity, with a global reach, you think, oh, it's all easy. No problem. You know, all those broker friends will come in and support you. It doesn't work like that. Don't underestimate that or overestimate that because it doesn't happen like that. You're on your own. You're completely on your own. You don't have that big corporate juggernaut to help you out, especially starting new, new, new. You know, when you have one desk and a couple of computers and three people, it's hard, especially in a soft market. So the lesson for me was underestimating the support of big corporate and then the market dynamics, I think. And that's why I think for us, it was a lot harder to get through the first two or three years. Would you do more diligence on your capital provider with hindsight? I think that's a really good point. I felt that at the time, when we looked at our capital provider at the time, Resistmo, with a Latin American presence, and they've been established since 1997, so in a great track record, and we found that they would be a fantastic partner for us, and especially with the Lloyd's 2025 vision of emerging markets and so on and so forth. So if I reflect on that, Mark, I don't think I would do anything different knowing at the time what we knew now, if we had known actually that it wasn't quite what it was, then I think the decision would have been different. 
in some ways, I think your decisions are dictated and influenced by what you know at the time. And we did quite a bit of due diligence at the time. So, you know, we looked at their balance sheet and then $160 million of assets. They had investments from three of the large government-backed funds. And this has been going on since 1997. So at the time, we felt there was the right partner. Little did we know that, you know, there were underlying issues and the regulators then intervened, what, two years later, I think it was. And then we realized that it wasn't as good as we thought it was. But we had to deal with that. One more cultural question, Ash. We know each other because of your openness to do Spanish-speaking business. And that's how I got into learn about insurance and that's how I got to meet you. Do you think the final hurdle that the London market has to overcome is to try and force itself to stop being this market of the English-speaking peoples and to really get over the culture and really embrace a diverse language and cultural diversity to really get into those interesting markets that are not Anglo-Saxon? I think the world has moved on, and I think lawyers has moved on as well. I, I don't think there are those prejudices now. I think as maybe there were existed probably 20 years ago. I think lawyers is very open to looking at. But then, you know, there are some technical difficulties with dealing with business outside the Anglo-Saxon world. One is the language, two is the legal environment, and the big one is licenses. If you look at nearly all the emerging markets, you cannot write direct business. You have to rely on writing facultative or treaty business. You're losing that proximity to the original distribution of the original customer. I think that's a bigger challenge than the cultural challenge, actually, to me. I think if we had direct licenses in the emerging markets, lawyers would be right up there in those markets. And then if you look at the market dynamics, if all the emerging markets, you know, the, the big ones, there's a lot of protectionism in those markets. There's a lot of regulatory burdens to actually access business. Then you've got the local markets who are quite aggressive. So therefore, what you actually get as Lloyd's is your second, third, fourth, whatever. It's a big filter before you actually get any business coming through to you. And then you've got the big international insurers position locally. And then you get the reinsurance now position locally. So by the time Lloyd's sees that business, it's gone through God knows how many filters. So I, I think it's more about that than actually a cultural issue with some of those businesses. Was it partly chicken and egg because Lloyd's not actively seeking those direct licenses because there isn't that much business coming and therefore it almost needs someone to come break that cycle to say, let's just go and do it. I think Lloyd's tried really hard to try and get licenses in those jurisdictions outside the Anglo-Saxon world. But I think the regulatory environment and the protectionism in those part of the world makes it very difficult for Lloyd's to get a direct license. It's not available, really. And that's the problem, I think. And therefore, I think we'll always struggle to get the penetration we would like to get in those markets, just because they're technical difficulties and largely driven by licenses rather than anything else. So what you've been able to do in Mexico is a really good model for what could happen if you get all the stars coming into alignment in the right way. But it will be limited scope, as always, because again, being local, yes, you'll get local business, but it will be still facultative business. 
you cannot write direct business. Therefore, it's going to be a limiting factor. doesn't matter how you go about it at the end of the day. And I think that challenge will remain unless and until there's this magic or silver bullet where Lloyds can access direct business in those markets. For example, in aviation and parcel marine, Lloyds does have direct licenses in some of those territories and writes a lot of business. Lloyds is one of the lead markets in, in some of those areas because it's got access to that business directly. So we've got to just be patient and wait for them to perhaps have a crisis and realize they need to access Lloyds and then they need to let Lloyds in. And that's beyond our control. We just have to be there and show them that we're a really good market and that we should be the market of choice. Yeah. Um, we've got to get our house in order on expenses and everything else and distribution, friction and service. So that's up to us. So Ash, I really have enjoyed chatting to you. It's always good fun. I always think if I've spent this much time talking to you, I always think, oh God, there's going to be a massive queue of really annoyed brokers as I walk out. <laughs> as we end this, he's like, what the hell were you talking about? No, we were just chatting about stuff. But I wish you so well. I think you've been through a hell of a lot and enjoying some of the sunny uplands. I hope, you, I hope you're able to enjoy yourself and still keep enjoying things as you keep growing the business. I just wish you all the best and hope you'll check in again with the voice of insurance at some point in the future and we'll have another a waypoint hopefully when you've got into cyber and international casualty treaty and other things we'll put a date in the diary of the sum next year to have another chat thanks so much well, thank you for giving me and protest the opportunity to do this this is my first podcast i've enjoyed the experience i'm not quite sure what's going to come out of the other end but you know you'll be the judge of that but also i just want to leave it in a final kind of thing you know what motivates me most is my people. And that is what keeps me going. I think people define the business and the culture defines the business. So my last thoughts would be that it's the quality and the people Crevitas has, which really keeps me going as a person. That's great. And obviously people and the man's best friend. What's the name of your dog, Ash? And what type of dog is it? Just for the listeners. It's a toy poodle. <laughs> and his name is Kylo. Well, good luck to you and, and to Kylo. And obviously, you're nobody's poodle, Ash. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>